He's a business and lifestyle coach with a gender-free clothing line called Limitless. He helps other creatives not only think outside the box, but blow up the box entirely. Please welcome Aiden Clark McFarland. I'm Aardvark Girl, and this is Business for Self-Employed Creatives. Well, Aiden, you are officially the first stranger I've had on this podcast, meaning we don't actually know each other outside of Twitter. So there's a lot to talk to you about, but let's start with your overall journey. We have this in common. We spent too many years in jobs that didn't serve us. So what was your experience and how did you get to your current life as a self-employed creative? So it's it's been quite a journey because I I think like many people in our society, I just sort of fell into the, you know, here's what I'm supposed to do. Go to college, get a nine to five, do the thing, follow the rest of the humans in the line. And there were a couple different things going on, which is one that I was dealing with pushback because I knew I was creative and I had a lot of things I did creatively as outlets. You know, I was I was a theater kid. I was in choir. I did all these creative things. I discovered costuming and love clothing, but I had enough voices telling me that those were only hobbies and I still had to figure out what my real job was going to be that like they just stayed that way. They stayed as hobbies. They were just fun things to fill the time. And so I sort of was looking for where I could shoehorn myself into the into some sort of career and corporate job and I would find that I would find something that I would find vaguely interesting or that might spark a little something. And I could spend a couple years there. But then within two years, I was usually like, I can't do this for another day. And I would have to find a new job or get to a new role or change something. I think the longest I stayed at a single company in technically the same position was seven years. And the only reason that worked out was because though my title stayed the same and my desk stayed the same, it was right in the madness that was 2008 and I was in the hospitality industry. So um, I was in the sales and marketing department, but then like basically because of everything happening in the financial world, they let go of our entire accounting department and most of the marketing department. And so my job massively changed overnight to teach yourself some graphic design and help manage the accounting for the department. So it kept it new and interesting enough that I was able to stay longer But I still, I kept fencing around and I was never satisfied. And so I finally realized that the piece that was missing was that creative piece, that I needed that in all of my life, no matter what I was doing. And so then I started looking to more creative focus jobs. I started working in theme parks, in costuming, and I loved it. And it still had a lot of the same problems as normal corporate jobs. So I was getting to at least play with my creativity a little bit, but there were so many rules and restrictions, and I was still, at the end of the day, fulfilling somebody else's vision. And I think that is where I really hit that wall. Instead of just a bump, it became a wall of, like, do I keep wanting to push other people's visions forward, or do I want to start finding my own? And can I build something that incorporates all these different elements of myself without restricting them. And so that's where I kind of went, what can I do? How can I start building this? And I literally started looking for ways to build an income from scratch. And then that gradually became a lifestyle. How did you start creating this lifestyle for yourself? Did you just take a leap and completely leave the corporate world and just say, I'm going to figure it out? Or was it more gradual? 
it was a little bit more gradual. It was kind of a, I dipped my toe in and then pulled it out again and then dipped it back in. The first thing I stumbled, like by total accident, across somebody who was looking, had an ad posted for, uh, like on Indeed or one of those, looking for to add a virtual member to their team that used a lot of the same office skills I had used when I was working in hotels in the sales and marketing. And I was like, well, if I could make the income I'm making from home doing that, like I can start figuring stuff out because if I can eliminate the commute that gives me back so many hours already, especially because I was living in Los Angeles at the time. So even if I was only going 17 miles, it was an hour and a half commute. So just even getting that much time back, I was like, I can start really figuring out what I want to do while I'm not losing income. So I tried with that company. At the end of the day, it was just not a good culture fit So then I kind of had to, I hadn't quit my job yet. So then I kind of had to lean back into my regular commuting job. But now I had an idea of like, this is a thing. People do this. So I started looking into like virtual assistant stuff and actually ended up basically doing like an online summit that was all about being a virtual assistant and the skills for that and building your resume for that and how to look for those jobs. And through that actually found a company that what's the word, like vets, virtual assistants, and then connects them with clients. And so I joined them and started building up a roster of clients that way. And then just through word of mouth, ended up just getting some bigger, more intensive clients just on my own. So I ended up leaving that company and just doing things on my own and really cultivating my client roster until instead of I'm just going to work and keep getting clients and keep getting income. I started fostering it down to which of these clients do I feel passionate about their projects? Do I feel like they're including me versus me just being a cog in their machine? And I really was able to fine tune. But so by that point, I had replaced my job income. So I set a date and I left my job, uh, which at the time was, again, at a theme park in costuming. I set a date. I left my job. I was doing full-time, and then I started filtering back the clients. So I ended up with this core of, actually at the time, it was two clients. Two clients who, working part-time hours, were still giving me more than the income that I had at a full-time job in the corporate world. So that just really opened up all the space to, okay, what do I actually want to do with all my creativity? I'm working with two clients who I really care about. I feel like I am part of their process versus just a piece of it. So I am feeling fulfilled with them. And I have this time to get back to costuming and sewing and fashion. And so that's when I really took a step back and started going, like, what do I want to do with this? Do I want to go back to, because I had briefly toyed with, I'll do custom costumes. I will just put myself out there and do commissions and custom costumes. And again, that was still seeing forward somebody else's vision. Because I would just have people come to me and be like, this is what I want. And this is the material I wanted in. And I'm like, trust me, you don't want to make it out of that. It won't hold up. I don't care. It's pretty. I want it. So I was still finding that same barrier. And also, it's so sporadic. when It's just like with any sort of contract and commission work. It's either there or it's not. There's a lot of having to really put yourself out there and hunt for it. And I got to this point. It's 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 sort of tricky because it actually ties in with my queerness in that 
I was not happy with the clothes I was finding off the rack. They didn't express what I wanted to express. Uh, you know, if I went to the women's section, it wasn't built for my body. If I went to the men's section, it was drab and boring. And, you know, so I wanted to find more clothes that fit me. And then I finally had this dumb moment of, well, I sew. I've been making costumes and stuff for years. Why don't I start making clothing for myself? And then I had a few friends go, I really like what you're doing. Would you make some for me? I'll totally pay you. And then from there, like, I don't know what finally shook the cog loose in my head of, why don't I just make clothing? Why don't I start a clothing line? And because I had the income from my two part-time clients, I had that cushion. So I didn't have to worry about it. And it was the middle of the pandemic when I finally made this choice. So I think there was also that piece of, what's going to stop me? I might as well do it now. And if it completely fails and blows up in my face, then I can just be like, eh, it's 2020. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody will remember it anyway. You know, if, if, if it's going to fail, it would fail whenever. But if I do it in 2020, I can just brush it under the rug and nobody will notice. So <laughs> that, that's sort of how it all kind of happened. But then to my shock, it actually did succeed. And now here I am with a couple core clients who I love working with part-time and a clothing line that is being launched in an entirely different way than I thought it would be because it's all had to be online. So Limitless, it's a gender-free clothing line and everything has pockets, which I think is really important to mention because who doesn't love pockets? But I mean, I, you kind of explained why it led to this. You didn't find anything that you could wear, so you had to make it yourself, which is telling of a lot of things because I think that's where some of the great inventions come about is when you're looking everywhere for the right answer and the right answer, you just have to do it yourself. But how has that expanded into your community? How has the reaction been? Obviously, it's been successful. So uh, tell us more about pockets. <laughs> Maybe not pockets specifically, but... yes. No, and, and and actually, no, but that is how this started. Like, it started as like a joke formulating in my head years ago. Um, in that I was talking to a friend, I think it was, you know, a friend who had just bought a new dress and, and she did the quintessential, I, I complimented the dress and it was, thanks, it has pockets. And we got into this whole conversation about women's wear and functional pockets or the lack thereof. And I joked that with my sewing skills, what I really should do is open a very niche tailoring business that was just called And It Has Pockets. And it was just like, bring me your favorite garments that don't have functional pockets and I'll fix that. And, you know, that still may be a subset at some point, but that's the joke that started. And then it just became, well, I'm just going to, now that I'm making these clothes, well, of course they're all going to have pockets. And like, so the first round of clothing is very, very unisex, very gender-free more tunicky and tunics and robes and things like that. But I also want to do some things that are like a little more gendered looking, but obviously not limited to, well, if you're a man, you can't buy this. Like, I want this to be anybody can buy it, but they definitely are more like, this is clearly a dress. This is clearly a skirt, but it has functional pockets. Imagine that. Originally, when I envisioned the clothing line, my husband is an artist and he travels to like comic conventions and pop culture conventions and is in the artist alley showing his art. So as I was looking around these events that I was supporting him at, I'll be at his booth with him and helping him out. And I was looking around and going, 
if I'm making these clothes and my friends are interested in these clothes and I started just talking to other people in the community and everybody seemed interested, I'm like, this is something I could potentially bring to the shows too. And then COVID happened and shows stopped. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? I can't, because I was originally just going to be like, well, I'll make a couple items and bring them to shows and see how they do. But then that option just got stuck off the table. And so I was like, do I sit and wait for shows to come back? Or do I take a step back and reimagine and do this another way? So I originally had no plans of like doing a Kickstarter or any of that. I was just going to like tease it out in like, here's an item, here's an item, you know, and take it to shows. But when that became not an option, I, I had to really kind of look at this and get really serious and build a business plan and how much would it really take to create a full line out the gate and what would that look like and how much would I need? Um, and so then I did the Kickstarter and what actually was awesome, but also kind of hilarious about the Kickstarter is that, yes, it succeeded. It got fully funded. It's amazing. I purposely went out of my way to add lower ticket tiers because being the pandemic and hearing from a lot of people how much they were struggling. I was like, you know, I know that the people I'm reaching understand that handmade clothing costs more than fast fashion. And I can't expect everybody to spend $120 for the clothing items on the rewards tiers. So I put in like tote bags and stickers and buttons and all these lower end things. And the first thing that sold out was the highest tier item. And I was just floored. And that just really, the Kickstarter ended up being, in an unexpected way, really good market research for which items were worth pursuing and which were really going to take off and which may just stay made to order only and I won't need to keep an inventory of them. Some items, I think, are still going to have to wait till we're in person because especially, because I know it's true for me, the pants. Like, nobody wanted the pants. And I don't think it's that they didn't like the pants. I think there is just such struggle with pants that fit if they're not like leggings or something that you know is super stretchy and going to be very forgiving, until you can put them on your body, you just don't know. And so now that shows are just starting to come back and starting to think about coming back, now I can start thinking about, well, these items did really well in the Kickstarter, so I'll have an inventory of those. And then maybe I'll do a couple of these items to see if in-person makes a difference. But yeah, it was an um, interesting exercise to see what worked and what didn't go as much, and how people responded, which was amazing. It was overwhelmingly positive response. And it's to the point now, so I made a bunch of sample garments for the Kickstarter and had my, because we couldn't even do a professional photo shoot because of COVID. So I literally took our like COVID bubble and we went out to a park and frolicked in a park to take pictures and do the Kickstarter video and all of this. But so then those sample garments were made. And so, you know, I let them keep them and wear them. And it's like, literally people will be out in public and, and they'll be like, oh, those look so comfy. Oh, those are awesome. Oh, thanks. Uh, this person made them and they're like, talk up the business. And so it's already, I've had word of mouth being like, where can we get these? When can we get these? And I've just been blown away by the support. And I'm so, I'm so glad that I finally just said F it and did it. Cause there was such that fine line when I had to switch to online launch of like, maybe I'll just wait. And that's like the story of my life. It's like, maybe, 
maybe I'll just wait till this one more thing happens or lines up or is perfect. And Waiting for one more thing is the biggest enemy to so many people because there's always going to be one more thing. And sometimes you have to leap right into it like you did. And what I love about what you said about it being market research, it's such a great example of if you want to know what people want, ask them. Because so many times people are like, well, I'm going to make this course because I think this is what people want and then nobody buys it. It's like, well, who did you ask? Oh, well, I just figured that this is what people need. It's like, well, that can work sometimes, but the best way to know what anybody is thinking as a human is to ask them. But so many people are trying to figure it out and spending so much time doing research, going down the YouTube rabbit hole and trying to just see everything that's out there, but just maybe talk to some people. And the crowdfunding thing is great because if it didn't get funded, you wouldn't have really put too much out there, but you saw very quickly, oh, there's a market for this. People are interested. I, I need to do this. And that's really exciting. Yeah. Cause I, I will admit I expected whether I was funded or not, I expected largely to recognize all the names on my backer list. I fully expected that at the most, it might be a friend of a friend, you know? And no, orders came in from Switzerland and New Zealand. And I'm like, I have no idea who these people are. I've never encountered you. I, uh, what? So there's clearly a market. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how that happens. I only have one experience with Kickstarter. It was for a documentary about you too. And I assumed that my friends and family would be the ones contributing and the director's friends and family, because anytime anyone I know is doing any kind of campaign or fundraiser or anything, I'm always contributing and I've never asked for anything. So I figured it would be reciprocal, but it wasn't anybody. It was hardly any, there were a few that jumped in, but if same as you, there were just people from all over the world. And the director had called me one day. He's like, there's some guy in the UK that's doing a live Facebook right now about our film. And I don't know who he is. And that guy ended it was this massive support, but I'm also almost glad that it was strangers. It was, that doesn't sound like proper grammar, but I'm glad that it wasn't taking money from the people I knew because it felt more genuine. Because if strangers are contributing to this, it has nothing to do with me. They're interested in the product. And I think that's the same as with your clothes. There there are a lot of people out there who don't feel like they fit in, who don't want to wear the standard clothes. And I get exactly what you're saying about pants, though, because as somebody with no torso and incredibly long legs, pants are the worst. I have the issue of I am wide but short And it's like, they believe that the wider you are, you also must be a foot taller for each inch wider. Seriously, if I find pants that fit me in the hips, they are like two feet too long. And (laughs) obviously I sew, I can hem them, but it's so annoying that every pair of pants I get, I have to hack like half of them off. And it's like, what a waste. But you can do that. You can't sew extra, well, you could sew extra legs to the end. With me, I I just have to... Except that, yeah, they're capris. Everything's a caprice. (laughs) Versus capris on me or ankle length. So, you know. Right. So, yes, if if we we could combine (laughs) our issues together, we would have everything. Combine our forces. Yes. Yes. (laughs) What are the things that you do besides making the clothes is you work with other creatives to help them find and keep the joy in creativity by blowing up the box. How do you do that? So honestly, that came about, again, 
because of, you know, my years of trying to fit in these boxes of what jobs were supposed to look like, what a career was supposed to look like, and sort of suppressing my creativity and my voice as a creative and as a queer person and the intersection of those two. And again, it was one of those things similar to with the clothing as I started talking to the people I was around because you know, we we magnetize others like us. And so our community, because we were doing these shows with my husband, were also a lot of other queer artists and creators and makers. And so, you know, I was just hearing sort of similar themes through all the conversations of like, you know, oh, but I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. And I don't want to, like a lot of fear of being seen and fear of being heard. And that also nobody's going to be interested in what I'm creating. It's not good enough. I need to do more before I can share it. Um, and a lot of that, like holding ourselves back because we don't think we're ready or good enough. And as I started getting out of my own way and really getting out there and showing my voice and getting on social media and starting a YouTube channel and putting out the clothing line, I was like, I have this experience of my own to share plus my years in business and admin. So I was coming to it from that lens, but also I actually sort of skipped a kind of a vital part, which is that when I first got together with my husband and, you know, he was just starting out on his path, like he was very much an artist, but he was just starting out on the path of like getting money for his art. And he very much was lost in that business side of things with like, I don't know how much to charge. I don't know how to approach these contract conversations and I don't know how to. So I just started by helping him with like the more business side of his art and really helping him learn how to put his art on social media and the internet and how to review contracts and how to charge what he's worth, which is, you know, an ongoing conversation because imposter syndrome constantly comes back. Yay. And as I helped him and our creator friends saw his business improve and him get stronger and more visible, then I had a couple more of them reach out to me kind of more in that virtual assistant capacity with like, can you help me with the business side of it? But then the more of our artist friends that I was helping with little business things, the more I was seeing that all the business help in the world wasn't going to get them where they wanted to be because they were still holding themselves back out of the fear of not being good enough or my product isn't going to do the thing or be what people want. And so I really started realizing how all the business savvy in the world wasn't the thing that was really going to propel them. What they needed was to get comfortable with their voice, with their creativity and with putting it out there and just letting it go into the world, you know, letting your child go out into the world and see what happens. Like, so it really just became about like, stop trying to fit into other people's boxes, find what makes you happy. However you can now, don't wait for the right time. Don't wait for the right moment. Okay. You're in a job you don't like right now. And financially you can't just quit. And like, you just don't feel safe doing it. That's okay. What little things can you start doing in your off time that bring that creativity and joy back in? What little things can you do to maybe start getting a dollar or two from it here and there? Like little things like starting a Ko-Fi or, you know, asking for donations on one of your pages. Like just little things to start getting used to asking for money and to putting yourself out there and then, you know, let it build. 
but just not letting that fear of the unknown hold you back and don't worry about what other people are going to say or how you're going to get judged. Just do it because you love it and you want to do it and it will make you feel more whole. And that's sort of how I've approached the whole thing. Yeah. I, I love, I, I love all of that. It's, it, we have very, very similar ways of thinking and how business and creativity go together. They're not actually separate things. And that fear again with, ah, I can't afford to stop. You know, I can't leave my job. I can't do this. I have to wait. I always feel start saving the money. Yes. The money is very important, but then as you get going and maybe you start making that dollar here or dollar there, and you start to build your confidence a little bit. And then you start to think about the value of time. And when you're spending the 40 hours a week plus the commute time, that's a whole lot of time that you could then be channeling into the things you actually enjoy doing that will make you more money. But you do at some point have to trust yourself and take a chance on yourself because nobody else is going to do it. And I don't mean that to sound negative, but if you don't believe in yourself, then you can't really ask other people to do it. So you kind of have to get over that self-doubt and start making yourself believe it. And you, you mentioned imposter syndrome, which unfortunately is a huge epidemic, especially with creatives. And that tends to lead to undercharging or undervaluing their work. And they start thinking, oh, I'll, I'll just do this favor. And I, nah, I can't charge that much. That sounds like a lot of money. How do you help people believe that they deserve their success and are worth more? So like I said, this honestly started with my husband. And that was the first thing. It's like, I saw what he was charging and I was like, this is not enough. You need to charge more. And I could tell him till I was blue in the face, but he had to to embody it himself. You know, somebody else telling you, here's what you should charge. Because yeah, like what you said with the creatives, it's like, I feel like there's this, it's so funny, especially in the pop culture and comic world, those artists particularly, because I feel like you look at fine art galleries, they don't seem to have a problem sticking like a couple thousand dollar sticker on their painting. But you go to an artist alley and they're like, please take my drawing, I'll pay you. And it is so tied up in that self-worth. And it's like, so sometimes it is a process of, the biggest piece for me has been like, because you get people who are like, well, but I only spent, like, say I spent a couple hours on this drawing. It's like, okay, Look at it a couple of different ways. Look at the materials you've used to create that piece of art. And what did they cost you? What practice and training have you done? Did you go to art school? Have you been drawing every day for 10 years and that's how you've gotten to this level? Did you buy better paints so that the quality is better? It's not just about you and what you think your creation in that little time window is worth. It's about everything that has built you to this point. So, and then when I start bringing it down that way, they're like, oh, okay, okay, I guess I can see that. And then even in little things like the cost of supplies, it's like, well, how much did that canvas cost? How much did those paints cost? How many hours did it take you to paint this? Okay, how much did you want to charge for that? Oh, $50. Okay, break that $50 into eight hours. How much are you just paying yourself? Oh, because a lot of times creatives, I find, They'll just look at the project as a whole and they won't think about it like in terms of hourly. And I don't want people to charge themselves hourly, but sometimes that's the moment when they really take a step back and be like, I spent two weeks on this and I've charged myself a dollar an hour. And that can start getting the wheels turning to, well, that's not realistic. Why would I expect that of myself? 
and to work for, you know, nothing, for absolute peanuts. And I think it's like when you start pulling in all these other pieces of like, you're charging for not just the time, but your experience, your education, your supplies, the the processes you put into this. Like, <laughs> one of my favorite things, especially as as somebody who sews, is like when somebody is like, you know, comes back to you with, oh, why are you charging like $600 for that ball gown? I could get all the supplies for $100. I'll be like, great. Here's the pile of surprise supplies for $100. Put it together. And they can't. They don't have the experience, the education, the skills. And that's what the charging is about. It's not just about the value you put on yourself. It's this culmination of all these different parts and pieces. And also... The piece that I find the most interesting, especially in the creative community, is the lower priced you price something, the less value people put on it. Whereas as you start charging more, people start looking at it as, oh, like if if they see you valuing your worth and charging more, they start believing in it too. So it really is that piece that you were saying about you have to believe in yourself before people will necessarily buy into you and believe in you. You have to have that confidence of, yes, this piece is worth $150. And you're still going to get those people that want to haggle and try to, you know, strike a deal. But for the most part, I know like when Harrison, when my husband first started raising his prices, he had a lot of fear that people were going to stop purchasing. And actually the exact opposite happened. The prices went up and he sold more. The first show after he significantly raised his prices, we made a bigger profit and not just because the prices were higher, but we sold more items, more prints, more originals, more all of it, because it's like people could feel like he was valuing his work, that there was value in it that he put in it. And that made them want it. People forget that part of it. And I've seen that happen with a lot of people. They raise their rates and they start selling more. Not only do they start selling more, but then they weed out those clients who want to nickel and dime and micromanage everything. It's this weird thing that the more they pay, the lower maintenance they become. You get quality clients and you make more money. So you're working less and making more and you have better people around you who appreciate what you're doing. And they understand that I'm hiring you because I can't do this. So I'm going to trust you. There's a reason. And there's also that psychology of people, if if they're only spending $20, it's probably not going to affect them as much. But if now they've invested $200 or $2,000, now there's more on the line and that's going to make them make sure they follow through with it. So it's this whole kind of cyclical thing, but charge more, always charge more. I teach a class for voice actors about rates, and we talk about that quite a bit. When I'm hiring somebody, if their quote comes in too low, I don't even entertain it because in my opinion, it's not, oh, look, I can save some money on the budget. It's they must not be experienced if they're only charging that much. So people try to think like, oh, well, I have to go work on Fiverr and I have to get paid peanuts. But that just means you have to work 
way harder to get the same amount of money. You're bringing down the entire industry, which is... And those clients are going to be the difficult ones. Exactly. The less they're paying you, I guarantee you those are going to be the difficult clients. I've seen it happen with both art and with my virtual assisting and with everything in between. It's like, if somebody is like going for your bottom rates, that is the client or commission that is coming at you like every five seconds with complaints and concerns. And can you tweak this? And what about one more thing? And what about one more thing? And what if I add this. Whereas if you start from your high rate, they're just like, great, here you go. Straightforward. I trust you. Go with it. And it's so mind boggling because it feels counterintuitive. But no, the higher, the higher the rate. I had that exact situation when um, I was earlier in my virtual assisting career in my stint as that with I did. I had applied for a position and my rate was still fairly low. And she actually emailed me back and said, if your rate is below this threshold, I don't get on a call because I know that 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 right there is telling me something. And I appreciated that advice so much. Having somebody tell me that, it was a huge eye-opener because I was kind of playing that Fiverr Upworks game of like, well, if I sneak in with the lowball number, maybe I'll get it. And so to have somebody say that to me, and then also to see the difference in client quality now that my rates have gone up as a coach, as an assistant, And for Harrison, as his art rates have gone up, the quality of the commissions, like the people, and again, that amount of trust they put him to work in his zone of genius and just do his thing without them nitpicking it to death has just changed dramatically with the price increase. It's amazing how that happens. And it's why I think it's so important to treat your creativity as a business. And people tend, you know, like you said, when you were starting, there was a lot of stuff or your husband who didn't know all of that stuff. And that as a creative, you don't want to be dealing with the numbers and the proposals and all that stuff. But as soon as you start thinking about your art as a business, it's not some taboo thing. No, you actually can and should make money for your talent. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's getting out of that mindset. And you actually talk a lot about things like self-care and mindset, which are facets of business that I think too many people overlook because it's not all about sales and numbers. So why why does that why do you find that part of it so important as well? Well, part of my whole journey is I have been diagnosed with depression and anxiety and there were a lot of mental health issues and that was part of the like the walls I kept hitting were that it would just get to be too much for my mental health. And in the way that we have built a lot of employment, it's like taking a sick day when you can be like, I have a fever, I'm going to the doctor, like that, there's less guilt thrown at you. But if you just like, I just need to take a day, there's a lot like mental health days. It's only in recent years. And I think, honestly, that's one of the positives that's come out of the whole pandemic is that I think people are talking a little bit more realistically about mental health and the need to treat that just like any other health issue. But to your point, it was exactly that. As I started to notice this crossover of it wasn't just business help they needed, but confidence help and to really get past their imposter syndrome, I was also encountering a lot of the, because our society places so much value on your level of production, artists who are such workaholics, even more so than I saw in the corporate world. I literally cannot, I have to be creating. If I'm awake, I have to be making something. I have to produce a piece of art a day or, you know, a piece of content a day. And this, this drive to, I have to be creating or I'm not worthy. 
I don't have that worth. And it just results in burnout. You don't have creative ideas anymore because you're just burning your brain out and everybody or creativity is just frazzled and exhausted. And it does you no benefits. So we have to, like you said, everything is connected. Being a creative and having the business and all the mental health and the self-care, it all has to be interconnected. And that's a big piece also of my coaching and how I approach it is it's like, I don't look at it as, well, now I'm doing my job and now I'm having my life. It's all integrated. It is my lifestyle, all of it together. And that means that there are some days where I'm like, you know what? Today is a me day and I just need to disconnect and, you know, sit outside and enjoy nature and relax and not look at a screen and not look at a sewing machine and just be, maybe put on some good music and dance around and just, but again, that also comes back to like finding that joy. Cause if we, even if we are lit up by our creativity, if we get stuck into that production only mindset, you start losing the joy. And then the creativity stops being fun. And now you've just turned it into the same thing as the corporate gigs, which is, you know, why you left them in the first place, I assume. And I think I I had a bit of that awakening when I was earlier, when I started out just being a virtual assistant, where I was just doing get more clients, get more clients, get more clients. I sort of forgot that I was doing this to give myself that creative cushion and that space to enjoy my life. I just sort of kind of because it's so ingrained in us as a society that you must be hustling and grinding all the time. And it's like, I don't know how much was just my mental health hitting a breaking point or how much of it was age and just finally hitting that age of effort. I I feel like I kind of embraced effort as a spirituality in that like, I was like done with anything that didn't serve my lifestyle as a whole. And so that meant adding some things, taking some things out. But I was like, I am done fitting into what society has told me life and career and work is supposed to look like. They made it all up. I'm going to make it up too. (laughs) The reason I'm smiling so much is this is exactly how I feel about all of this stuff. And I, I cringe when I hear the word hustle. I think I've done an episode about that because there's this glorification of busyness. And people think when they start working for themselves or they start a business, their entire life has to go into that. And it does take hard work and you do need to invest your own self and your time into it. But work-life balance is not just a catchphrase. It's a very real and necessary thing. You can't, if you work all the time and you don't find the joy like you talked about, you will start to resent your own business. And that, again, like you said, goes against everything you did. I have said often that I left my job job so I could work less and make more. And taking breaks is a huge part of it. I will work really hard when I have to. I know myself and what I can handle very well. And there are times though, when I will take a break because I'm so busy, I have to. And that's the part that people lose sometimes. They think, well, how do you take a break if you have all this stuff to do? I have to, because if I take the break, and it doesn't necessarily mean a whole day, although that's lovely, but sometimes just going into the other room for 10 minutes means when I come back into the room, 
I can breathe again and I'm going to be more productive than if I just go, go, go with all the stress and anxiety and everything else nagging at me from behind that. That's not an effective way for me to work. So I will just find some, if I lived somewhere where I could go out in nature, I would go for a walk, but in Vegas with extreme or excessive heat yeah. warnings, yeah, no, that's not going to happen melt. here for a while. Please don't. But sometimes I, people have laughed, but sometimes I'll go take a walk around the kitchen. I'll just do a couple laps, listen to a podcast or do something. It's, it's like a brain reset. And I think that's important for us to do always. And we have the ability to do that. So why not take advantage of all all the freedom that we have and take care of ourselves and make sure we're enjoying it. Otherwise, what's the point? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I found that when I first started out, when I first left my job and basically became my own boss, I found out that I was actually being a worse boss than any boss I'd ever had. And so, yeah, it took, there was a bit of rude awakening and, but then, yeah, I think I try to remember who said it to me because somebody else I was working with said something to me that, made me see, I, I took a step back and was like, cause I kept being like, Oh, I have to finish this thing. Cause I, cause it was supposed to be done tonight and it was supposed to be done tomorrow. And this had to be done by then. And somebody asked me who set those deadlines. I'm like, well, I did, but Oh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, Oh. And I think, and so that's now a question that I ask my clients and I ask other creatives is like, because there are some things like if you have a commission and and this is literally delivery date that was in the contract, you know, then obviously you do have hard deadlines. But I feel like we tend to set these deadlines for ourselves that are so arbitrary. So when you feel that pressure of like, there's too much, there's too much, take a step back and look at the list and be like, okay, which of these actually have deadlines and which of them are self-imposed deadlines that the only person holding me to them is me? And then also taking a further step back with, I love what I do and I'm passionate about what I do, but it's not a life or death situation. If I don't get that done today, nobody's actually going to die. I'm not a brain surgeon. And sometimes I have to remind myself of that. Nobody's going to get hurt or die because I don't finish this today. It's a good perspective to have. And I, it's, again, I'm laughing because I've said the exact same thing many times. It's like, nobody's dying over this stuff. So if you don't feel like you can give your energy to it right now, it's where the logic comes in. I have a lot of the logic, but it's, think about it practically. What happens if you don't do it today? Can you do it tomorrow? And, and maybe you'll feel better tomorrow, but I, I'm a big believer in, again, finding that balance because you do have to keep yourself motivated to do things because you don't have a boss or somebody telling you what needs to be done. You have to do that for yourself, but you also have to be reasonable with yourself and you can, you're a human and you can only do so much in one day. And if you keep pushing past that limit, you'll get to that burnout and then you're going to be sick and then there will be less that you're able to accomplish so just slow down. It's okay. That's one of many things that's great about working for yourself is you can slow down when you need to. Exactly. Exactly. And that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times where you do push and work a lot. There are sometimes like right now with the, I'm trying to, my last batch of fabric has just arrived. So now I get to bust out the last of the Kickstarter rewards. And yes, it is a slightly self-imposed deadline. I just don't want them hanging over my head forever. These people are being great and patient, but the fabric definitely took longer to arrive than I had hoped. 
And so I just, I don't want it hanging over my head all summer. So I'm setting myself a deadline of the end of June to finish the last of the Kickstarter rewards, which is totally doable and means I'll probably be working a bit more this month. But that means that then in July, I could take my foot off the gas and be like, hey, it's hot. I don't really feel like being in my studio right now or only spending a couple hours there and need I, then I need to go sit in front of a fan and that'll be okay, you know, because... Like, so it can come in spurts, you just, but you have to be very aware of and know where your limits are and not consistently push yourself past them because that's where you hit the burnout. If you occasionally do it, you're okay. But if that's all you ever do is push yourself past it, recipe for failure. If you had one piece of advice for other self-employed creatives out there, what would it be? Oh, And it doesn't have to be one if you want to throw more yeah. in there, but... No, it actually, I, there was something you said that, that pinged a reminder of something a mentor of mine said to me once, which was any situation you're in, like whether it's the idea of launching something new or putting something new out there or leaving a job to focus on your creativity or raising your prices, any of it, if fear is holding you back, ask, what is the worst thing? Like, what is my worst fear? What is the worst thing that could actually happen? Like, get out a notebook and write down, what am I afraid of? What is the actual worst thing that can happen? And it's like, like my mentor talked about, like, like he did some, like what he called fear casting. And it was literally like, okay, if this happened, the absolute worst thing that would happen is, uh, I don't pay the mortgage and we lose the house. Okay, so what then? We move in with my parents for a little bit. Is that great? No. Am I dead? No. Okay. Like, but so it's like literally asking yourself, what is actually the worst thing that could happen? And then actually realistically look at that worst thing and go, if that happened, what would I do? And by doing that, we often find we're much more resilient than we think we are. And the fears that are holding us back are really things that aren't the end of the world. They only feel like it. But when you actually take a step back and look at them, you're like, no, that's, that's not that bad. It might mean a few things have to change for a little bit, but ultimately I'd get back up and keep going and it's not the end of the world and nobody's going to die. And nobody's going to die. So where can people find you in social media and out in the world? Uh, out in the world. So uh, limitlesswearables.com is the easiest place to find me right now. My social media handle fluctuates from channel to channel because of character limits, uh, but it is some variation of Aiden is Limitless or Aiden Limitless, and I am on Instagram and Twitter for the most part. And I also have a YouTube channel, uh, which is Be Limitless and Queerate. It's this thing behind me, which is probably backwards on the screen. That YouTube channel is both my sewing and my creativity and my coaching. I kind of roll it all into one and I do interviews with other creatives. Uh, so it's kind of become a mashup of this weird life I've created for myself of encompassing all the different pieces. So YouTube, Instagram, Twitter are the places you can find me the most. Uh, I'll absolutely share all my links with you uh, so you can share them. But yeah, limitlesswearables.com is the easy one and it has links to everything else. You're everywhere is what you're saying. You are everywhere doing everything. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I like that you have embraced your weird life. So thank you for taking some time to share it with us. Thank you for having me. This has been super fun. <laughs> 